Thanks for downloading today's podcast of Clearly Seen, taught by Mike Kokoris. I think you're going to enjoy what Mike has for you today. And if you're ever in the San Fernando Valley area of Los Angeles, we invite you to Lindley Church. Mike would love to meet you personally and answer any questions you have. Feel free to email your comments and questions to michael at kokoris.com. Now, let's hear from Mike. All the children assembled to be in the lawyer's office to hear the reading of the will of their father. Some were thrilled when they heard what was read, and some were shocked as they learned that not everybody in the family, not all the children, received an equal share of the estate. Now, that's not always the case. Some parents deal with their children equally. But there are cases where that is not the way it's done. For that matter, that's the way it should not be done in some cases because of the behavior of the children. It is definitely not true spiritually. The Bible speaks of an inheritance, but apparently not everybody gets the same inheritance. So what's the difference? And how different are the differences? The answer to that question is illustrated in Genesis chapter 49. So what I want us to do is go through this chapter, and then I'm going to explain how this is an illustration of what the New Testament talks about when it talks about inheritance. So turn with me, if you will, to Genesis chapter 49. Now, as you will recall, um, at this point, uh, Jacob, in the previous chapter, uh, in 47, I should say, blessed Pharaoh. In 48, he blessed Ephraim and Manasseh. And then he blessed Joseph. Now, next, he's going to bless all of his sons. And that's what happens in chapter 49. So look at verse 1. Then Jacob called his sons and said, Gather together that I may tell you what shall be what shall befall you in the last days. Gather together and hear, you sons of Jacob, and listen to Israel, your father. Now, at this point, he's just saying, Come, let's all get together and listen to what I have to tell you. What follows down through verse 28 is him addressing each of his sons. So look at verse 3, he says to Reuben, verse 5 to Simeon and Levi, uh, verse 13 to Zebulun, verse 14, Issachar, verse uh, 19, Gad, verse 21, Nathalai. Verse 22, Joseph. Verse 27, Benjamin. Now, if you try to organize these names, you're going to scratch your head. Apparently, 
what he does is he divides them according to their mother. Now, that gets to be an interesting little situation because he had two wives and he had children by each of those wives and then he had children by the maids of each of those wives. So he had four uh, wives, so to speak, two are called concubines, and from those four women he had children. So apparently this passage is arranged by the the mothers who had children, though that's not said. To complicate matters, under each of the wives, we know those children were born to that wife, but they're not listed in the order in which they were born to that wife. So the best we can do is say that the chapter is divided, or at least down through verse 28 is divided, into these four wives that he had. So let's look, beginning at verse 3, at Reuben. Reuben was the son of Leah. That was uh, his first wife. So verse 3 says, Reuben, you are my firstborn, my might and the beginning of my strength, the excellence of dignity and the excellence of power. Unstable as water, you shall not excel because you went up to your father's bed, then you defiled it. He went up to my couch. Now, verse 3 is saying, uh, you are my strength. That sounds like an interesting uh, phrase. You are my firstborn, my might, and the beginning of my strength. Well, clearly, this is the first son he had. He's the firstborn. That's no question about that. But what does he mean when he says, you are my strength and the beginning of my strength? Well, he apparently is saying something like, uh, you are the first of my procreation. And the strength he's talking about is the ability to procreate. Then he gets down to talking about Reuben in verse 4. And he says, you are as unstable as water. The idea being that he was, uh, some interpret this little phrase to mean he was reckless. He was un, with unbridled uh, license. Now, it says he was the firstborn. And then it says he was as stable as water. Now, put these two things together, and here's what you come up with. As the firstborn, he should have had the preeminence among all of his brethren. He should have leadership of the tribes, the priesthood within the family, and a double portion of the birthright. Just being the firstborn got him that inheritance, the major part better than others got, so to speak. But, the text says, he was as stable as water. And then it goes on to explain that he will not excel because he went up to his father's bed. Now, if you will recall, as we went through the book of Genesis, we saw that he 
went up and committed incest with his father's concubine. And he was probably doing that to demonstrate that he was the firstborn and the head of all the other brothers. But what that did, according to this passage, is he will not excel. It did not work. As a matter of fact, all those blessings that I just mentioned, that he should have gotten simply because he was the firstborn, are forfeited. He forfeited these blessings, preferring rather, as one said, to give free reign to his lust. The leadership of the tribes, therefore, went to Judah. The priesthood went to Levi. And eventually the double portion that he should have gotten went to Joseph. So essentially, Reuben destroyed his right to inherit. This is very important. Because of the sin of sexual immorality, he lost his inheritance. Very, very interesting. I'll come back to that later, but it's very important to notice he will not excel because of what he did. He does not get the birthright of the firstborn. Now, in verse 5, we pick up Simeon and Levi, who are brothers. And he goes on to say, Instruments of cruelty are they in dwelling place. Let not my soul enter their counsel. Let not my honor be united to their assembly. For in their anger they slew a man, and in their self-will they hamstrung an ox. Cursed be their anger, for it is fierce, and their wrath, for it is cruel. I will drive them into, uh, into Jacob and scatter them in Israel. Wow. What's going on in their case? Well, the first thing it says is they are brothers. Now, wait a minute. All of these are brothers. I mean, the passage begins in verse 1. He called his sons. So they might have been half-brothers in some cases, but they were brothers. So why does he bother to point out that they were brothers at this point. That's obvious. And the answer is probably that they were brothers in the sense that they were like-minded. Now, if you remember their story that we covered in the book of Genesis, they had a, they had a sister. And that sister was violated by some of the, about what, by a man, I should say, a prince of Shechem. And Simeon and Levi took vengeance and went to the city and destroyed all of it. Remember that story? That's what he's referring to here. And what he says is this. They were instruments, verse 5, of cruelty. And I don't delight in them, verse 6. My soul uh, enters their council. Let not my honor be unified, united in their assembly. For, their ang- for in their anger they slew a man. And in their self-will they hamstrung an ox. So they killed people and 
they destroyed property simply because they were angry and self-willed. So he says, cursed be their anger, for it is fierce, and their wrath is cruel. Here's what they get. I will divide them in Jacob and scatter them in Israel. They don't get an inheritance because of their sin. Jacob abhorred their sin. He does not want his honor to be united with them. With deep emotion, he disassociates himself from them, their motives, and their actions. He explains that what he detested was what they did in anger. They slew a man, and in their self-will, they hamstrung an ox, which was the destruction of property. So, he curses them. And the curse is that they would be scattered among the other tribes. The Simeonites eventually lost their tribal identity and lived among the other tribes, especially the tribe of Judah. The Levites also received no large land grants. I mean, that's the whole point, that the inheritance was a portion of land. The Levites didn't get any land at all, but they did, because of a promise made in the book of Exodus, they did become the priest, and they had cities in the land, but they did not get a portion of the land. One common comment on this passage says, even though these first three tribes suffered punishment for their sin, Jacob's prophecies about them were still a blessing. They retained a place in the chosen family and enjoyed the benefits of patriarchal promises as Jacob's heirs, end of quote. Interesting. What he's saying is this. They got to enter the land, but they did not inherit anything. Other tribes were given portions of land. They got nothing. And it's because of the sin of immorality, sexual immorality, and the sin of murder, destruction of property, anger, and self-will. Let's continue the story. Drop to verse 8. Judah, you are he whom your brothers shall praise. Your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's children shall bow down before you. This is interesting. The word Judah means praise. And this passage says, he whose name is praised will be praised by his brothers. Judah will put his hand on the neck of his enemies, meaning that he will be victorious over them. And when he is, his brothers will bow down before him in awe and respect. There's more about Judah. Look at verse 9. Judah is a lion's whelp. From the prey, my son, you have gone up. He bows down, he lies down as a lion, and as a lion, he shall, or who shall rise him? 
So Judah is compared to a young lion. As a young lion, as a fierce lion, he will pounce on his prey. As a full-grown lion, he will be an irresistible force, seizing his prey and then ascending to his mountain den, and he will repose in undisturbed security. So that's what this passage is describing in verse 9. He possessed a lion-like nature. As such, he became the leader of the other tribes, though he came from David, and then from him came the David and later the Messiah, who is called in the book of Revelation, the Lion of the tribe of Judah. Now at this point, the passage gets real interesting. Uh, I want you to go back to verse 1. He says, And Jacob called his sons and said, Come together, and I will tell you what shall befall you in the last days. Huh. That little phrase appears throughout the Old Testament. In the last days. That phrase often refers to prophecy, something that happens in the distant future. Now, as we read this chapter, some of it happened in the near future, in the history of Israel, and some happened in the distant future. So, Judah's going to be a fierce force to be contended with. But when you get to verse 10, it's evident that we're now talking about something in the distant future. Look at verse 10. The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor a lawgiver from between his feet, until Shiloh comes. And to him shall be the obedience of the people. This is an incredible statement. Judah is going to be the ruling tribe until Shiloh comes, and when Shiloh comes, the people are going to obey him. Now you've got to ask, when did the tribe of Judah produce a leader like that? That he was The scepter would never depart out of him. The lawgiver from between his feet, that's probably referring to this staff, and when the king sat on his throne, he stood it between his feet. And the people shall obey him. Well, the Jewish rabbis in ancient times said this verse is talking about the Messiah. The Jewish rabbis of ancient times, said, Shiloh is another name for the Messiah. So this verse is saying, out of the tribe of Judah shall come the Messiah. And that, of course, we know from the New Testament, is exactly what happened. So, Shiloh is the name of the Messiah. 
Judah will continue until that ruler comes who is so competent that he will achieve perfect rest. Shiloh will extend Judah's rule to a worldwide dominion. The people, not just Israel, the people, which is beyond Israel, will obey him. It'll be a worldwide rule. That is what that verse is saying. Now look at verse 11. Binding his donkey to his vine and his donkey's colt to the choice vine, he washed his garment in wine and his clothes in the blood of grapes. His eyes are darker than wine and his teeth whiter than milk. Now in highly figurative language, he is describing prosperity. In ancient times, they would never bind a donkey to a vine. Why not? Because the donkey would eat the vine. So to say we're going to tie a donkey to the vine means there is so much plenty, it doesn't matter. His donkey's colt will... uh, and his donkey's coat to choice vines, he will wash his garments in wine. Now, who would wash their garments in wine? They certainly wouldn't have done that in ancient times. It's highly figurative language that's saying we have so much wine. There's so much agricultural production that donkeys can eat the vine and we still got enough left over to wash our clothes in it. It's hyperbole. It's a figurative description of great prosperity. Now, verse 10 is talking about the Messiah coming, and the people of the world are going to obey him. And then, verses 11 and 12 are talking about great prosperity. Now, this is vague here, but as you read the Old Testament, it becomes very clear later that this is the kind of thing the Old Testament scriptures predict. That the Messiah is coming, and he's going to set up a kingdom, and in that kingdom there's going to be peace and prosperity. It's that fact that tripped up the Pharisees when Jesus arrived. Because they were expecting that kind of a kingdom. And he came the first time to die. And he came the second time to set up the kingdom. Now the Old Testament is very clear that the Messiah would come and die. Isaiah 53, you know that passage. The Bible is equally clear that he's going to come and set up a kingdom. Daniel chapter 2, Daniel chapter 7, numerous passages in the book of Isaiah, and on and on I could go. But that confused the Pharisees. Matter of fact, some of the ancient rabbis said, huh, In these passages, the Messiah suffers. And in these passages, the Messiah rules and reigns. So that doesn't fit. He's going to suffer and die. How can he reign? And they couldn't put it together. So some of them came up with two Messiahs. The word Ben in Hebrew means son. So they said Ben Joseph and Ben David. There's going to be a Messiah that's Ben Joseph, the son of Joseph. Joseph suffered. That's the suffering Messiah. Then there's going to be the Ben David. Uh, The son of David is going to rule and reign. And that's the way some of them satisfied 
this seeming contradiction in the Old Testament. But when Jesus came, he came the first time to suffer. And when he comes back the second time, he's going to rule on the earth and set up a kingdom of peace and prosperity. And in veiled language, that's what this is talking about. As you read the Old Testament, it becomes clearer and clearer that that's what he is saying. So Judah will become the ruling tribe, or out of that tribe, the ruler shall come. And ultimately that means David, and even beyond that it means the Messiah. Verse 13, Zebulun shall dwell by the heaven of the seas. He shall become a heaven for ships, and his border shall adjoin Sidon. Uh, now, this is simply saying he's going to get a portion of the land. And his territory is going to touch the Sea of Galilee on the east and spread westward over the greater portion as it ended up in the plain of Estelon. Uh, that's two-thirds uh, across the land uh, from the Mediterranean to the Sea of Galilee. Uh, Apparently, they had some contact with ships, and this was fulfilled in that sense. At any rate, it's just saying Zebulun uh, got that portion of the land. It's um, the portion uh, from the Sea of Galilee uh, almost to the Mediterranean, probably had some rights to go to the Mediterranean. All right, look at verse 14. Ishakar is a strong donkey, lying down between two burdens. Uh, he saw that rest was good and that the land was pleasant. He bowed his shoulder to bear a burden and became a hand of slaves. All right, now we're going to say what Issachar gets. Issachar was a strong donkey. That's a figurative language for a generous amount of physical strength. I think today we'd say strong as a bull or something like that, wouldn't we? All right, he was strong as a donkey, but that's figurative language for he was, uh, had great physical strength. The Hebrew word translated burden actually means sheepfold. So it's saying lying between two sheepfold means that they either settled in the country where sheep foals abounded, or they were situated between tribes where sheep foals were. At any rate, it's saying uh, they're going to be an agricultural people. In verse 15, uh, he says, he saw that rest was good and that the land was pleasant. Interesting. He saw that the rest was good. That very Hebrew word means pleasant, agreeable. He was utterly unambitious and perhaps even a little lethargic. He was strong, but he was lazy. That's the point. He worked I mean, he could work like a slave, but what he really wanted to do 
was uh, rest. So his tribe would do work that required exertion and brute strength, but his descendants would become like a band of slaves. They would readily become a toiling labor force for other people as long as a fair amount of ordinary creature comforts could be enjoyed. And that's the meaning of all of these little phrases. Issachar is thereby warned against aiming too low, against burying his talent, so to speak. One commentator says that Issachar, because Issachar preferred abundance and luxury, he was willing to trade his liberty for the material things of life. Instead of using his ability to work for himself, Issachar would work for the Canaanites for food and rest. This gain was considered a mockery, for it is the reversal of the relationship that should have prevailed between Israel and the Canaanites. Instead of the Canaanites serving them, they will just do a little work so we can lay down and rest, and we'll become your slaves, we'll become your servants. So, this was the lazy tribe. Now, what I've done so far is uh, go through the children of Leah. At this point, at verse 16, we are now going to talk about the children of the concubines. And then we will get to the children of Rachel, the other wife, the one that Jacob fell in love with first. But let's pick up at verse 16 where he talks about Dan. He says, Dan should be a serpent in the way, a viper by the path that bites the horse's heel so that its riders shall fall backwards. What does all of that mean? Uh, well, uh, it means that uh, he would uh, be like a serpent, a small animal, that would take down a horse and its rider. So the tribe of Dan was, by the way, small. And they got a portion of the land, and they didn't like it. They couldn't conquer it, and they moved north. And apparently there, they were able to protect uh, Israel from some of those people that lived to the north. So he says in verse 18, I have waited for your salvation, O Lord. So, what this passage is saying is that Dan, while apparently unimpressive because it occupied such a small area, nevertheless was a dangerous adversary, well able to protect Israel's northern border from invaders. However, uh, they are the ones that led Israel into idolatry, and therefore, in that sense, they were similar to a serpent. Verse 18 seems to be saying that Jacob asked the Lord to deliver his other descendants from Dan's influence in the future. Although some say this means Dan's blessing would come true by the power of God. All right. That takes us to verse 19 and Gad. 
Gad, a troop shall tromp, tramp, uh, tramp upon him, but he shall triumph at last. Bread from Asher shall be rich, and he shall yield your loyal, royal delicacies. Let me uh, take Gad first, and then we'll get to Asher. Verse 19 says, He whose name uh, means uh, is troop shall have a troop trample on him. In the end, however, God will give him the triumph. Uh, dwelling in the east of the Jordan. Now, let me explain. You know, the, the uh, promised land was bordered on the west by the Mediterranean Sea. You entered the land, there was a mountain range in the middle, and then there was the Sea of Galilee, the Jordan River, and the Dead Sea on the east. Those bodies of water uh, served as, in a sense, a protection of the land. On the other side of the Jordan River, the east side of the Jordan River, uh, they were much more vulnerable to foreign attack. Gad settled on the east side of the Jordan, and so they were trampled, but in the end they were triumphant. So dwelling on the east side of the Jordan, on the edge of the kingdom of the Amorites and other desert, desert people, they were open to attack, but was well able to fight. So it's simply saying, that's your portion of the land, and here's what's going to happen when you get in it. Now, I read ahead of myself a minute ago when we got down to verse 20, where it says, uh, the bread from Asher shall be rich, and he shall yield royal dainies. Uh, Asher uh, was one of the sons of the concubines, located along the seacoast north of Carmel. That's north in the land of Israel. Asher contains some of the most fertile land in all of Canaan. From the rich farmland, Asher was able to produce delicacies worthy of a king. The tribe of Asher failed even to take possession of Tyre and Sidon. Regions the tribe soon became, and, and as a result, they became insignificant. And because of their love of ease and their proximity to these foreign nations. At any rate, again, they get an inheritance. They get part of the land. That's the point. Naphtali is in verse 21. Is a deer let loose? He uses beautiful words. So... Uh, Naphtali is a deer that speaks beautiful words. He would be a messenger with a message of victory, beautiful words. He delivers a message of good news. The prediction uh, regarding the good words might refer or might be fulfilled in the victory song of uh, Barak and Deborah in Judges 15. At any rate, that's what he's known for. He's going to be the one that um, speaks beautiful words. All right, now, we got one mother left. That's Rachel. She had two children, Joseph and Benjamin. 
And so the rest of this passage, down through verse 27, talks about Joseph and Benjamin. So let's pick it up at verse 22. Joseph is a fruitful broth, a fruitful broth by a well. His branches run over the wall. The archers have bitterly grieved him, shot at him, and hated him. But his bow remained in strength, and the arms of his hands were made strong by the hands of the mighty God of Jacob. From there is the shepherd, the stone of Israel. By the God of your fathers who will help you, by the mighty who will bless you, with blessings of heaven above, blessings of the deep that lies beneath, blessings of the breast and of the womb, blessings of your father have excelled the blessings of my ancestors up to the utmost bond of the everlasting hills. They shall be on the head of Joseph and on the crown of the head of him who has separated from his brothers." Wow, look at all the space and all that's said on Joseph. Now, Joseph is the one that was sold into slavery, and yet he gets uh, into Egypt and ultimately rescues all of his brothers and his father because he was in charge of food distribution. So, what this passage is saying about him is that because he will be situated by a well, verse 22, his branches will run over the wall. In other words, such a healthy, thriving, full-grown, well-supported, fruit-bearing vine is what it's describing. The fruitful tribe of Joseph and Ephraim and Manasseh. Now remember, remember in the previous chapter, Jacob blessed two of Joseph's sons, uh, and made them his sons. They were grandsons. He made them his sons. Remember that? Well, when he's blessing Joseph, he probably is including Ephraim and Manasseh. Verse 23 is saying, even though Jacob will be abundantly blessed, he will also have archers bitterly against him because they hated him. The problem began with his brothers. Remember, they hated him. And some of that was going to follow his descendants. Nevertheless, according to verse 24, even though Joseph will experience oppression, the Lord will strengthen him to make him strong. His bow, used for defense's purposes, will be strong because of his strong arms will be strengthened by the Lord, who is called a shepherd and stone of Israel. The God of Jacob will help Joseph and abundantly bless him, and supernaturally assist him, which is the point of verse 25. And Jacob adds in verse 26 that the blessing on him, meaning himself, has been exceeded by the blessing of his ancestors. His blessing extended to the borders of the everlasting hills, indicating that they filled the land. In specific terms, Abraham had one son of promise. Isaac had two children. Jacob was more blessed than them in that he had 12 sons destined to be the head of the 12 tribes 
of Israel. So Jacob says his blessing should be on the head of his son Joseph, on the crown of his head of the one who was separated from his brothers. Blessing here is in the agricultural pursuits, livestock, descendants. He's going to be abundantly blessed. The God-giving blessing of the future will outshine those already experienced. By the way, no spiritual blessings are mentioned here. Spiritual blessings are never said to be the inheritance. Uh, So, at any rate, Joseph's going to be abundantly blessed. One more, Benjamin. It is a ravenous wolf. In the morning he shall devour the prey, and at night he shall divide the spoils. So Benjamin is like this ravenous uh, wolf who will devour his prey in the morning and divide the spoils at night. The tribe of Benjamin would be bold and strong and successful in warfare, but at the same time might become cruel. That's the point. The expressions morning and night cover the entire intervening period. In other words, Benjamin will always be successful in spoiling his foes, and at the same time, when he encounters his foes, he will be fierce like a wolf. There is a conclusion to all of this in verse 28. All of these are the twelve tribes of Israel, and this is what their father spoke to them, and he blessed them, and he blessed each one according to his own blessing. So the sum is given by simply saying, this was Jacob's blessing to his twelve sons. The obedient, I should say the observant father, Jacob, knew his sons probably better than they knew themselves. He knew which ones would be strong and therefore victorious, and he knew which ones would be lazy. But if you are a father of many children, you know that's not hard to figure out. And so they were blessed according to their, to their individual position. So the inheritance was not equal. Some got disinherited. Some got an abundance of blessing. And some got some ordinary blessing, all depending on who they were as individuals. So the summary of this passage is, the Lord blesses all of his children. They all entered the land. But the extent of their blessing depended on their obedience and on their dependence on the Lord. Now let me repeat that. All of them got blessed in the sense that they entered the land. But after that, the blessing depended on them, on how obedient they were and how they depended on the Lord. Now, let me... um, conclude by making some observations. One, each individual 
And therefore, every tribe had his own distinct characteristics. One author lists these as industrious or lazy. Uh, Some were puritanical and others were licentious. Some were peaceful, some were aggressive. Some were philosophical and some were mechanical. He adds that that does not preclude many of the individual exceptions, but it does usually seem possible to define a general terms at least a dominant nature of each group. That each of these tribes had sort of a family characteristic. Now there may have been exceptions in the tribe, but each tribe had their characteristics. This is not politically correct. But it is true that nations have characteristics. Is it not? We don't like to talk about that today because we need to, the whole pitch today is to eliminate all those kind of distinctions. But this passage is teaching each of these tribes had, uh, each of these sons had characteristics that were perpetuated through their descendants. They became like them. Interesting. But beyond all of that, this passage illustrates that it is not necessarily true that it's like father, like son. Think about that. Some of his sons were not like him at all. They did things he abhorred. In those cases, they acted out of their own sinful nature, not out of their upbringing. Nature won over nurture. So that is one of the lessons of this passage, and a comfort to parents who've had a bad child. (laughs) Then he says, I think we should point out, this chapter illustrates the concept of inheritance, and this is where I want us to think about. All the the sons and their descendants entered the land, but not everyone received an equal share of the inheritance. Quote, one author says, all 12 sons received the benefits of the covenant. All were blessed in that they were all allowed to enter the land. Then they were all blessed to carry on the Abrahamic covenant by becoming founders of tribes. All of God's children are blessed in that they will be with the Lord forever. So we all get at least that much of an inheritance. If you've trusted Christ, you're going to heaven, and nothing can change that. At the same time, a greater inheritance is based on obedience. Obedience was present. uh, Obedience, I should say, has, has present and future consequences. All of Jacob's sons were blessed in that day. They were out to enter the land. But in the land, they were not equally blessed. Reuben is censured. The anger of Simeon and Levite is cursed. Some are passed over and some elevated to leadership and double blessing. Joseph and Judah come to the fore, as indeed they had 
in the story of Joseph before this. Joseph receives a double portion so that Ephraim and Manasseh would have equal share with the other sons of Jacob. And out of the promise that was given to Abraham, kingship was received for Judah. So there is not an equal inheritance. They all entered the land, they got that much of an inheritance, and after that, the inheritance was not equal. One author suggests the scope of this prophecy extends to the millennial age. God did not fulfill these prophecies completely during the lifetime of Jacob's sons. He did not do so uh, during Israel's years in the land, beginning with the conquest of Joshua and ending with the captivity. Moreover, he was not done so since then. So ultimately, this is in the far view of when the Messiah comes. All right. I said this was deeply significant to me because it helped me understand the New Testament. I want you to turn to Galatians chapter 5. Galatians chapter 5. And while you're turning, let me remind you that all believers inherit heaven. That is stated in 1 Peter chapter 1 verses 3 through 4. There is no doubt about that. But that passage goes on to say some will have, uh, that passage Peter goes on to say in his second epistle, that some will have an abundance entrance into the kingdom. All enter the kingdom but 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 5 to 11, says that some will have an abundance into the kingdom. All right, let me say this one more time. All who've trusted Christ enter the kingdom. And in that sense, they get an inheritance. Some get an abundant entrance into the kingdom. The double portion. The great blessing in the kingdom. And some get disinherited. Who gets disinherited? Look at Galatians chapter 5. He says, verse 19, Now the works of the flesh are evident which are these, adultery, fornication, uncleanness, lewdness, idolatry, sorcery, hatred, contentions, jealousies, outburst of wrath, selfishness, ambitions, dissensions, heresies, envy, murders, drunkenness, rivalries, and the like, of which I told you before, just as I also told you in times past, that those who practice such things shall not inherit the kingdom of God. Now, a lot of preachers come to this passage and say, aha, if you're guilty of some of this, you were never saved, or you lost your salvation. But you won't enter the kingdom. That isn't what the passage says. It says if you do these things, you will not inherit the kingdom. There's a difference between entering the kingdom and inheriting the kingdom. You can enter a house and not inherit the house. So, all who've trusted Christ enter the kingdom. 
Some enter it abundantly. 2 Peter chapter 1. And some get disinherited because of their practice of sin. Now, I was told that, and the first time or two I heard it, I didn't like it. Because the common interpretation of Galatians 5 is that if you do these things, you were never saved, or you lost your salvation. And then I discovered Genesis chapter 49. Genesis 49 helped me to understand Galatians chapter 5. Wow. In Genesis 49, Jacob gave one son a double portion, Joseph. And three were disinherited, Reuben, Simeon, and Levi. As the firstborn son, Reuben should have been given preeminence among his brethren, leadership of the tribes, priesthood within the family, and a double portion of the birthright. But because of his sexual immorality with his father's concubine, he was disinherited. Jacob told him he was as unstable as water and would not excel because he defiled his father's bed. The leadership of the tribes went to Judah, the priesthood to the Levites, and the double portion to Joseph. Reuben lost his right to inherit. So the application to us is very simple and very clear. If you've trusted Christ, you're going to heaven. You're going to enter the kingdom when Christ returns. There's no question about that. But you can have an abundance entrance into that kingdom. Jesus said some are going to rule over ten cities and some are going to rule over five. Or you could be disinherited. You can live in sin instead of obeying the Lord. And when you do, you get disinherited. You'll sweep streets. The Bible doesn't say that. But you're not going to rule over ten cities or five. So, this illustrates that while all believers have an inheritance, not all believers receive an equal inheritance. Strive for the greater inheritance. Jesus said, lay up for yourselves treasure in heaven. Father, thank you for this illustration. It clarifies confusing passages to many in the New Testament. But Lord, beyond that, plant within our heart that desire to have an abundant entrance into your kingdom. In Jesus' name, amen.